0: The Voice of Motown, West Virginia's leader in news, analysis, and rumors, proudly presents The Voice of Motown podcast, featuring your boys, Brandon and Tyler. Take it away, gentlemen. This is
1: The Voice of Morgantown podcast. I'm Tyler Pepe.
0: And I'm Brandon Cork, and today you are joined by two especially suffering <laughs> WV fans.
1: Yeah, and let's just jump right into it. West Virginia falls to Kansas at home in overtime by the score of 55-42. to Not too often you see a 13-point loss in overtime, but it's not too often WVU starts the season 0-2 either. The last time our Mountaineers started 0-2 was 1979, and when you look at the schedule after Virginia Tech, it doesn't seem like it's getting any better anytime soon. So, you know, any enthusiasm for this year was absolutely crushed against Kansas. And although Neil Brown's buyout makes it almost impossible, a lot of people are calling for the firing of Neil Brown's. But uh, I think it's safe to say officially nobody is trusting the climb now. What do you think?
0: I couldn't agree more. I mean, I I don't think I've ever been so upset after a WVU loss, at least in in a long time. Um, And just looking at, Kansas and their performance over the years, it just makes the loss even that much worse. So uh, since 2008, which was Kansas's last winning season, Kansas has four road wins before this past Saturday. 2009 against UTEP, 2018 versus Central Michigan, 2019 versus Boston College, and 2021 against Texas. Um, And then most recently this Saturday in Morgantown. Um, that's not a great list of teams to be up there with, especially knowing how that Texas team performed last year, how bad they were. And that's kind of where we're at now. And that's all on the coaching. Um, You know, obviously there were some player mistakes in the past two games that definitely didn't help, but I felt like there were coaching decisions in both these games that could have made things winnable easily.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to argue. That was probably the most disappointing game I've ever witnessed since the 2007 Pitt game. I can't think of any game since then that was as disappointing. Some people have been bringing up the Kansas loss that Holgerson had, but that was on the road. So Mm -hmm. to me, this is definitely worse. I mean, you're at home and you fall to Kansas. Um I don't know Neil Brown is proving that he he's just not qualified or capable of being a head coach at a power five program. I just can no longer defend him you know i I have no more excuses for him. I've made a lot over the years, and I've just ran out honestly. The bottom line is he's not getting the job done, and what he's done is indefensible so far. you know the talent's there. Uh, we, we keep giving him the excuse that Dana didn't leave him a lot of talent. He's got players this year, so that excuse is gone. And his poor coaching and leadership is just turning WVU into a laughing stock. It feels like I, I feel like the fans, for the most part, have been more than fair to Neil Brown. They've waited. This is his fourth year, it's his players. And even after losing to a hated rival like Pitt, most fans were still excited for WVU football. And so you got to give our fans credit. Um, but now, after losing to Kansas, I don't think there's one single excited Mountaineer fan for this football season, and that's because once again, Neil Brown's football team was undisciplined. They were ill prepared for their opponent. It seemed like, and he just got outcoached. You know, in his three plus years at West Virginia, his teams have always played up or down to their opponent's level, and um, that, and because of that, he got burnt once again by you know, a squad, I understand Kansas is on the rise and they're not the doormat they used to be, but you're at home. There's no excuse for losing to Kansas there. Um, And and honestly, if you break it down, I feel like West Virginia has the better players on that team. Um, And so I don't know. It's not like WVU has lost two straight games to superior opponents. I feel like Neil Brown has just proven that he's, he's not a power five head coach in these past two games.
0: Yeah, and I, I think another thing that kind of bums me out as a WVU fan is that the program's at a state now where this Kansas, this win for Kansas isn't really even a talking point for a lot of people. I mean, obviously, we we're overshadowed by Notre Dame losing, Texas A&M losing. Um, I think there's a third school who lost, who got upset as well, and then Scott Frost getting fired. But, you know, it's still Kansas, and we're at a point now as a program where you know, it's not even like a headline. It's not even like I was watching videos earlier today about the top three or four worst upsets of the past weekend. And we didn't even get an honorable mention. I mean, that's kind of where the program is now. And that's, you know, obviously the beginning was a little tough for Neil Brown. Um, I, I still kind of think that Dana left the cupboard a little bit bare for him. But like you said, all these are his guys. He has hand chosen every guy who's come in here. There may be a few carryovers. Um, like Bryce Ford Wheaton and Dante Stills, who came over from the Holgerson era, because they're you know fifth year seniors, six year seniors, whatever they are. But you know, it's his it's his his group of guys, it's his group of coaches. He's made changes and he's been slow to change. I mean, it took him three years to realize he needed to get a offensive coordinator. Um, he cycled through coaches in the secondary, um, you know, and it just seems like he just couldn't figure it out, and he still hasn't figured it out, and. You know, we're going to talk about several things in this episode that kind of just show all of the things that lead to a loss, like the the play calling, the um, choosing the starters, the who he's playing and who he's not. There's just so many different pieces that kind of just augment the argument that Neil Brown is in over his head and hasn't shown. Um, But before we get to that, I, I wanted to ask you, what record would Kansas need to finish with? for this loss to become more palatable.
1: I say bare minimum Kansas has to be an eight and four team for me to look back and say, well, that was a quality opponent and we just lost to the better team that day. But even then, I don't even know if I truly believe that in my heart because, you know, I was there and I saw it. I felt like they just had a better leader. They had a better coach and a coaching staff. And because I still think pound for pound, we had the better guys on the field. It's just, We lost when it came to the X's and O's. I mean, our defensive front, we'll get into this later, they played very well for those first few series, absolutely shut Kansas down. And then it seemed like Kansas adjusted. And we, as always, just never did. We just kept doing the same thing over and over again and left our corners on islands. I mean, like I said, we'll break down the X's and O's here a little bit. But, I mean, how many times have we come on here and talked about how Neil Brown made no adjustments at halftime?
0: Yeah. I mean, it, the only time he's really made adjustments that I can think of was that Texas Tech game last year where the it just seemed like the entire team took the first half off. And I think the adjustment was just, you know, hey, guys, play football, um, <laughs> which, you know, looking at it, it really shouldn't be that hard of a thing to do. Um, but losing the Texas Tech 17, nothing given in the halftime um, is, is not good. And I think that's just a, si- a sign of leadership. You know, you got to get your guys ready to play. And um, the offense looks better. I mean, we'll talk about that later, but the offense looks a lot better. And I I think because Neil has been more hands off, um, you know, the offense has been better, but you know, there's definitely some downsides there, even though we are scoring a lot of points. Um, you can still look at the little kind of micro decisions or macro decisions, whichever one you want to say, um, that, that Neil Brown is kind of ever seeing, whether it's situational play calling, whether it's, you know, figuring out what, pace he wants the offense to play at I'm sure he has input on that sort of thing and I, I feel like his fingerprints are still in the offense in some way shape or form he may, may not be calling the plays but I think he's behind some of the strategy and that's really kind of holding us back there um you know as far as Kansas's record you know I might be able to settle for like a six and six Kansas because that's a big jump for Kansas that's four times as many wins they had last year um Jalen Daniels I, I don't want to poo-poo on him he's an exceptional player um you know, all the way through the game up until they won it. I I was saying, you know, I have a hard time seeing him stay at Kansas, um, his entire career, but if Kansas keeps trending the way it does, then, you know, he can be a main cornerstone for why they're doing that. So no ill will towards him. He's a fantastic player, but you know, he was only one guy and he basically single-handedly beat the Mountaineers. And I I think, you know, Neil has to win at least seven games and right now it's not looking like he can, um, But as you brought up earlier, the big problem with Neil right now is he has a buyout, which means that when he gets fired, he is due 100% of the salary that he has left on his contract um, going forward. So what do you think of that? And are you confident that the donors can get pissed off enough to get that money together to do what needs to be done?
1: I think it depends on what how the season plays out. Um, I, I mean, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Neil Brown has a $20 million buyout if he gets fired today. Um, let's just be honest. WVU is not going to pay $20 million. <laughs> even at the end of the season, though, it's $16.7 million to mm-hmm. fire him after this season, even if we crash and burn. Now, I mean, if we win two, three games all year, I think maybe there is enough support to build up money to do that. But, I mean, that's still a ton of money. Um, And and so that kind of means we're probably stuck with them no matter how this season turns out. Um, Like I said, unless it's like two wins, which I'm not sure I see that. Um, But this also brings up Shane Lyons. Shane Lyons gave Neil Brown a contract extension after two seasons at WVU. And at that time, Neil Brown was just 11 and 11 here and he was coming off of a Liberty Bowl victory over Army. Um, But that wasn't a slam dunk by any means. If you remember, the Mountaineers barely walked away with a win that day. Army's quarterback had a huge day, which how often do you say that? And um, even at the time, people questioned the decision. Now, people weren't questioning it as much because, you know, we were coming off a bowl victory. But now people are really digging into all the terms in that contract, and they're really questioning what Shane Lyons saw to, to extend him. It made no sense to me. Coach Brown's original contract would have expired at the end of the 2024 season. That's still two seasons away. That seems like a decent deal. Why was he, why was he in such a hurry to extend him? Now it runs to the 2026 season. And my real question is, has Shane Lyons ever had to answer for this? I I know he had quotes when this all went down that he liked the direction the program was heading in, coming off a bowl win, but he really put WVU in a weird spot now. Where I mean, essentially, we can't even fire Neil Brown if we want to, um, not anytime soon, at least. And so, um, I don't know. I feel like he really dropped the ball on that extension. Of course, hindsight's twenty twenty, but even looking at the facts at the time, it just didn't make a whole lot of sense.
0: Yeah, see, I, I think you know, if push came to shove, we could get the money to buy him out. I, I have a hard time thinking. I mean, there has to be some sort of oversight to Lions, right? I mean, that's kind of my thought on it, is that the donors before he gave that contract out had to say, you know, I know this is a ridiculous buyout. I know this is a lot of money, but if things go down, we'll figure out a way to buy him out. And it may also come along with the lines of, you know, who they think they can get lined up. I know, you know, that the big rumor is that Jimbo Fisher wants to return home eventually. And, you know, who knows what type of connections donors for WVU have to there and what's going on with Texas A&M with that upset, If their season goes south, it could be the perfect storm where donors, you know, all come together and say, "You know what? I don't care. I'll pay sixteen and a half million dollars. Then we'll go out there and pay Jimbo whatever the heck he wants to come come home." Um, That could get people fired up, but it's really going to come down to I think, like you said, that the money is going to be harder to come by if it's a coin flip on whether Neil has turned it around or not. I mean, think about if we go six and six. We somehow turn it around. We go six and six we go to a bowl game, we lose a close one. It's a tough game or we get a, a you know, a, a halfway decent opponent, opponent or we do win, but it's a close win. You know, what, what are people going to do then? Cause you know, that money does become more of a factor than where I think if Neil Brown wins five or less games, it becomes a lot easier of a decision. Um, especially after the past few years where, you know, outside of a six and four season, he just hasn't done anything. So I, I think, the money is going to become more of a problem the more Neil Brown wins. But like you said, it's really going to depend on how he performs against other teams. And he does kind of coach up to the competition. So maybe we go into Texas and we somehow pull off an upset. I mean, I'm not confident that's going to happen, but something like that could really throw a wrench into things. I mean, Baylor comes to Morgantown, you know, maybe he gets them fired up for that. But I think the real fear is, is that, you know, what's the, You know, what's the turnaround in the program? How do you get the players to buy back in after that loss? I mean, what what do you say to them? And can Neil Brown do that?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. And I think that's a good segue into what we were going to talk about next, which is where is Neil Brown failing with his coaching? And so, um, I mean, for me, obviously, he's an excellent recruiter. I don't don't think anybody's going to knock him for that. He embraces tradition and culture of the program. Everyone has given him big praise for that, which not every coach does, as we know very well here at West Virginia. Um, but however, he, he's severely lacking in some big areas. For me, a big one is player development under his leadership. You, you don't really see a lot of it besides Bryce Ford Wheaton. Um who else can you really point to that's improved under him? And no one better tell me Dante Stills because Dante Stills was a stud before Neil Brown was even here. And he would have developed under just about any coach. So I'm not going to give him credit for Stills being an excellent player. Bryce Ford Wheaton has made huge leaps, but, um, I mean, he's a 50 year senior. I mean, typically if you stick around that long, you're going to learn and you're going to blossom towards the end there. So yeah, I'll give him credit there, but, um, I, I mean, other than that, is anyone really sticking out to you who he has made better over these years?
0: Man, now that you mentioned it, I mean, it's really hard to think of a name. I mean, the only guys I can really think of are guys who have left the program. I mean, I'm thinking of Tyke Smith. I'm thinking of Akeem Mesador. Mm-hmm. Those guys made some huge steps forward, a lot of growth, and they turned into borderline superstars, and then they left. You know, so, and, and you know, I know every coach is different where they don't, mesh well with with superstar sort of sort of players they prefer a team mentality versus a me mentality and that's fine but you know i think you also need to learn to embrace your superstars um but that's a great point i uh, other than the guys who have left i can't think of anyone which is crazy to me
1: i can't either and i mean if you're a head coach that's your I mean, that's, that's got to be one of your most important qualities is improving player development over the years. My other big knock on him is what we talk about every single week, consistently undisciplined football teams. And I mean, weekend, week out, year in, year out, whether it's false starts, late hits, muff punts. Um, who has he ever disciplined for being careless? Very few times Do you, do you see him disciplining a player. And I understand you have to have a little leniency. These are 18 year olds, 22 year olds. But, um, you know, when is he ever going to bench somebody or make an example out of somebody for a boneheaded play? I mean, more often than not, you're going to see the person who had a critical false start right back out there. The person who had a critical late hit that extends the drive right back out there. You're not even going to pull him over to the bench for a few plays and scald him and make an example out of him. And like I said, you know, you don't want to see that all the time. But, um, I mean... I'm not one of these guys who are saying hire Rich Rod back, but I think back to the Rich Rod days and he would absolutely lose his mind when he saw a player fumble, be careless, have a dumb penalty. And I mean, just listening to former players talk about Rich Rod, they were scared (laughs) of making mistakes. Does any player strike you as being scared of Neil Brown when they screw up?
0: No. and, And I have two things after I answer your question, or one thing after I answer your question, but You know, I think I'm okay if it's if the guy's not a disciplinarian because, you know, every coach is different. Um, But you need to find a way to get into a player where sitting down with them and, you know, bringing it up that what they did was wrong, getting it through to them. You don't have to be an authoritarian. You don't need to scream at them. You don't need to make them run 55 laps around the field to get your point across. But there has to be some sort of acknowledgement that a mistake was made. There has to be some sort of coaching moment, whether it's yelling or sit down talk that, hey, what you're doing is hurting the team. We want to win. You want to win. Let's do this. And I'm not sure if I've seen Neil do it either way. And that's, that's a problem. I mean, that's, again, comes down to leadership and when it comes down to discipline, I can think of one player who was actually sat out of a bowl game. <laughs> discipline. Yeah. Smith. Tyke Smith. Yeah. Probably our best defensive player that we've had during, you know, the, Neil Brown era. I mean, and it kind of goes back to show with like, he really seems to value those, you know, hardworking kind of team style guys. And I I made the complaint last year where, you know, Grayson Malisevich, was returning kicks. Um, He muffed a punt (coughs) and he never pulled him and it's happening with Ree Smith again. And I, I know these are, these are white guys and it's not to be racial in any way, shape or form, but you know, it's just, you know, he has kind of a soft spot for these more like hardworking guys who are, you know, working their way on the lineup, they're trying hard, but you know, it's kind of like with hockey like you, you, you have these fourth liners in hockey who work hard, they'll go in there, they're four check, they'll, they'll check, they'll work their butt off, but you don't want them to be on the first line. You don't want them to be the guy you're leaning on. You need to have stars, you need to have guys who can get you points, and you know, you need to have a little bit more leniency with them. And I, I think in my opinion, where Neil Brown is most lacking is kind of his coaching strategy, where he wants to have control of the game. He doesn't want to feel any sort of risk. And I think it comes down to, I mean, you can kind of look at his whole coaching career. You know, whenever he was getting those upsets at Troy, he was doing it by controlling the clock, controlling the game, keeping it slow, grinding the game out, which is kind of the personality that he kind of prefers. Um, And then, you know, just winning through the little minutia of the game but you can do that when you're a small school kind of coming in against a big school and kind of surprising someone but when you're in a power five conference and you're going up against the best coaches you have coaches who are familiar with your program they've been scouting your guys for four years it's you know you're not gonna be able to pull surprises on them that minutia kind of goes away you just have to win the game with talent and schematics you know you can't manage a game to a win it's just not possible and i think that that in my opinion, is, is his biggest weakness right now is he's just not a good strategist when it comes to a game-by-game you know, thinking. So what, what do you see there?
1: Yeah, I'm 100% with you. If you're at a Power 5 school, you're not sneaking up on anyone. <laughs> like <laughs> Everyone's going to come out and be ready for you. And yeah, I mean, I'm 100% with you. And it's not like he has to be like Rich Rod and red in the face and about to have a heart attack on the sideline. But what is he doing? I mean, this isn't a two-week problem. This is a going-on-four-year problem of undisciplined teams. I mean, you got to do something. And don't get me wrong, I don't think the players are, you know, not caring. Obviously, these players are passionate, and they feel bad when they make a mistake. But whatever the message is that he's sending to his players, it's not getting through. Because they're still having late hits, which extends drives in overtime. They're still having false starts, which changes seven points into three points. And when you're losing one possession games week after week, that's the difference right there between mm-hmm. winning and losing. My other big problem with Neil is which side of the ball is Neil Brown good at? Meaning, like normally you get a head coach, they're offensive gurus, they're defensive gurus, Dana Holgerson and Rich Rod were offensive gurus. Don Nealon had some legendary defenses during his tenure and you know, he had players have great successful NFL careers on the defensive side. What is Neil good at? You know, what, what is he well known for? Um, We know he doesn't have a great offensive mind. No offense. Sure. His defense has played decent in these first three years, but they looked awful in these past two weeks. And besides the Virginia tech game, um, you know, they typically seem to collapse in crunch time, these defenses. Even when they were putting up good stats during the years when we had bad offenses, I can think of numerous games where they played well up until the last half of the fourth quarter and we would lose close games, like Texas Tech last year, which you were talking about. So I'll ask again, which side of the ball is Neil Brown good at? He has no identity, he has no one thing where I can say, man, I want that guy to be my head coach. Um, And once again, you know, is a guy like that qualified to coach at a power five program?
0: I think that that was one of the draws with Neil Brown when he came in was that, you know, he wasn't an offense or, or defensive guy. Obviously he had experience as an offensive coach, but what he was kind of seen as was a program builder, which is kind of a head coach that it's a hard candidate to kind of quantify as to how valuable we are, because I think that's the hardest job to, to win over. You know, if you're an offensive specialist, you can put up points, you know, that's going to be predictable. We saw that with Dana. If you're a defensive coach, then, you know, you're going to have a good defense. It's a little bit harder to be a program builder, but you also have to be really good at those management skills. And I don't think he has that. I think he was definitely overrated at the time with Troy. Um, You know, we just talked about, you know, the, how he kind of approaches the game. And I think a lot of the issues that we've talked about, all kind of tie in with each other, you know, with the penalties and the lack of player development. I mean, maybe the penalties are that you can't hold players accountable. You can't bench them because you just don't have the depth behind them. Cause you're not developing players and you know, you're not managing the program correctly. You're not bringing in the right guys. You're not anticipating that, Hey, I'm bringing this guy in to take your job. You have to beat him out in camp this year. How many position battles did we have coming into the season this year? You know, I think right tackle, we had a position battle
1: secondary Um, and we're seeing how that's turned out
0: yeah i mean and other than that it feels like as soon as some people stepped on campus they were named starters and transfers and maybe you know that's the right thing to do because they have experience but they shouldn't be starters all the way through summer just by being on campus there should still be battles you should still be hearing about Jacoby spells going against rashad ajayi and and you know there's a position battle there i don't think i read anything about that i read seeing them getting reps you know i've seen you know andrew wilson lamp who was a guy who i thought was going to start the season at cornerback um you know get some reps there but then as soon as you know other guys became available he kind of faded into the background and Malachi ruffin was starting he was a walk on um so i i'm not not exactly sure what his management plan is i'm not exactly sure what his player development plan is i'm not exactly sure what his recruiting plan is and you know i love his recruiting classes and i'm not exactly sure you know, what his accountability plan is. Um, there's just so many question marks and, you know, he's a great guy. I like the tradition that he respects. I like his idea of what a good program looks like. It's just all the things that matter on the football field. I just don't know what he is and what he's good at.
1: Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, we had a pretty intense quarterback battle this offseason, obviously. Yeah.
0: But <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the, the yeah, is position battle – of all time, you know, I, and that that's the thing that everyone was talking about because every there was no other position battles. I mean, you brought in, what, four four-star players and none of them battled for a position on a defense that lost how many players in the secondary. Um, you know, there was really no talk of a, a, a running back battle, even though we lost our starting running back. Tony Mathis just kind of stepped in and Tony's doing a fine job, but, I mean, we have two four-star backs behind him. We have C.J. Donaldson who just kind of stepped up. Um, along the offensive line, this offensive line was atrocious last year, and we have the same five starters, basically. I mean, Hubbard played a little bit, but Yates was back in the game. And I don't think he played bad, but still, like, you've been recruiting how many offensive linemen over the past four years, and the best you can muster up is the same five guys as last year. Um, you, you can't hold players accountable unless you have someone who's going to step in and take their job if they're doing the job right. And um, across the board, there, there's no accountability, and there's no depth. And there's no plan.
1: Yeah. And I mean, obviously Neil Brown's likability is what's giving him the leash he even has, even though it's not that long anymore. Um, because if he had a personality like Holgerson, which rubbed rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, um, yeah, he probably he might already be fired because there would just be even more of an uproar. But um, you know, we keep saying how good of a recruiter he is, and he definitely is, but how long until your win loss record hurts your recruiting and then you got nothing bringing to bring the table too. So um, yeah I don't know. It, it just seems to be snowballing. So that kind of leads us to our next topic is if we do get a head coach next year two years from now, whenever it is, what qualities are mountaineer fans looking for? And um some of the things I wanted to highlight was obviously you want a head coach that can recruit well, or at the very least, a guy who surrounds himself with good assistance, which we've seen happen at WVU in years past, um, who can pull in guys. But we need a guy who, again, this all goes back to what we just talked about, holds players accountable. Um, no you know. You know whether you're up 20, whether you're losing by a field goal, you should have a certain standard that you expect from your players. Take care of the ball, not fall start in critical situations. And um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it just goes back to what we were talking about. Another thing I want to coach with an identity like we just talked about, like Brent Venables, who got fired or sorry, got hired at Oklahoma. You know what he brings to the table. He's going to improve your defense like they know what they were getting, bringing him in. Um, so the next coach that we hire, if it comes down to that, um, I, I just want him to have an identity that we know what we're getting when he steps in a head coach.
0: Yeah, I think that's good. And I think on the top of my list would be, you know, I I think definitely accountability would be up there at one or two. The other would be, you know, I think some sort of energizing factor. And that's one thing with Neil Brown is that he's very even keel. Like, you know, he does get fired up a little bit on the sidelines at referees and things like that. But it's not especially
1: like especially at refs.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, and like, but there's no like you know, I'm not looking for the raw, raw guy necessarily at halftime like like what Bill Stewart did, because you know, Bill Stewart as a great man as he was, I wasn't a big fan of him as a coach, but like someone who can who can motivate, who can strategize, who can do something that brings some pop to the table. You know, someone who gets his players to keep fighting, whether that's through strategizing cha- making game plan changes or motivating guys i mean i think of you know those times where rich rod was down you know multiple scores and was able to orchestrate comebacks either by getting his players back in the game or drawing something up or substituting someone or just throwing something different at the wall and hope- hoping something sticks i mean you need to have some sort of innovative mind and willingness to be flexible to figure out how to win and, you know, I think that would probably be my one accountability to probably be two. But, you know, you just need someone who's willing to understand that, you know, this is college football and the transfer portal exists for a reason. Like, go out there, figure out who can perform on the field, figure out what works for you, figure out what your offense, offensive identity should be, and then just work with it. And once you figure it out, run with it. And that's what Rich Rod did. You know, what was it, his third or fourth year before he got Pat White? I mean, he was bouncing back and forth between Bennerick and Pat White. He didn't make a decision, and eventually he found out Pat White was the guy. Steve Slayton didn't start the season off as starting running back. He had to figure out that he was the guy. He had to trial and error his way into it. And once he figured out who his guys were, he just ran with it. And right now, Neil Brown just kind of seems like he makes up his mind in the summer, and then that's what lasts all season long. And what happens is what happens. He doesn't kind of seem to think about changing things up. And, you know, it's been evident. I mean, we saw it last year. We saw it the year before that. We saw it the year before that. I mean, the only change he's ever made was in that bowl game against Army where he pulled Deggy.
1: Yeah, and it turned out it worked and got us a win. I mean, you bring up a good point. I feel like what he sees in practice is just what he sticks with. Like, he never seems to make a decision based on what he sees on game film. It's normally, hey, this guy's playing great in practice. We're starting him. And it's like, well, I mean, some players are just better during game day than they are in practice. That's in any sport, basketball, football. And I feel like he doesn't make decisions based on game day. He makes it on, you know, Wednesday.
0: Which yeah. I don't get that. I don't get it either. I mean, you you know, and you you don't know what these guys are going to do on, on Saturdays if they're not playing on Saturdays. You know, you may play them a handful of times, but that's not a large enough sample size. You can't expect – you know, you got lucky with CJ Donaldson where he comes out and he busts off a 44 yard run. You have to keep on giving the ball. But what if CJ Donaldson went out there, two plays, gained two yards, came in one more play, missed a pass block. I mean, are, is he still in the contention for starting running back? I don't think so. I mean, nah, I guess it's just see. kind of, you know, what happens happens. And we got lucky that CJ Donaldson is tearing up and he has had two great games right now, but I mean, how many other stories like that can you think of during the Neil Brown era where a player had a a window of opportunity and seized it because they had that opportunity? I can't think of anyone.
1: I'm with you. And that kind of leads to our next topic, which is we better see some fresh faces on Saturday, especially in the secondary. Um, You know, I'm kind of good where, where most people are starting except for our secondary. I mean, it's just been terrible and I don't want to see fresh faces in the second half of this game versus Townsend. I want to see them, you know, starting. All right. Um, And I don't know. I don't know if we are going to see that, but this can't be the lineup for the rest of the year. It's just not working. I know it's only been two games, but you've got to shake something up. Um, Give some of these young guys experience against a team like Towson who, I mean, You should win. I'll just put it that way, because after last week, I don't know anymore. Um, And then a team like Virginia Tech, who's not very good, how about giving fresh faces a bunch of playing time this Saturday, and maybe they're ready to go for Virginia Tech, and maybe they help out your secondary, which has been struggling. All I know is they better have it figured out before the Big 12 gauntlet starts, because if not, we probably are looking at like a three-win season.
0: Yeah. And it's just kind of strange how this all kind of shook out. Cause I mean, Malachi Ruffin, who was a walk-on, was starting at corner. And if you remember when McCormick got booted out of the pit game, the guy who came in from him was Mumu ben who's a true freshman, you know, pretty highly recruited guy. And I don't know if I saw him, you know, if he did play, he didn't play very much, but you know, how do you, if you were the backup, how come you're not starting in place of that guy? Um, Ajayi with someone who I'm not sure how he's still on the field after the way he played against Pitt and then against Kansas. I mean, he may be a great kid. He has experience playing high-level college football, but you know, he allowed four catches for 90 yards. Um you can't be doing that. And um uh, Marcus Floyd who is a safety linebacker hybrid, whatever you want to call him spearback. Um he had three missed tackles. He allowed four catches on four targets. Now, albeit it wasn't for a lot of yards, but you know, it's just things like that that add up and you need guys who can go out there and make plays. And you have guys like Hershey McLaurin, who was a highly recruited Juco guy who came in and he's actually been playing a decent amount, but he's not starting. He's not taking a majority of snaps. And he's been someone who I thought has played really well. Um, you have guys like Jacoby spells, who was a four-star really highly rated cornerback coming out of high school. Um And I haven't even heard anything about him. You know, you have that new Moon been one hot again. Um, you have Andrew Wilson's lamp, who is a, a bigger corner. I think he was six two. Um, I think he might've been a high three-star or a four-star coming out of high school. He's a redshirt freshman. He was actually started the spring game and he's nowhere to be found. I mean, I don't even think he's seen a snap yet. Um, so I'm not sure where, where these young talented guys are. And when you have guys who are transferring in from FCS schools and small um, FBS schools, I mean, not everyone's going to be Charles Woods. Um, t- you can't just rely on them to figure it out. You got to, cycle through these guys and figure out who's going to actually make it happen on Saturdays. Um, yeah.
1: And that, that's actually a question I would like for someone to ask Neil Brown, like maybe this week, like, Hey, where, where is spelling? Where are these guys that were so highly regarded and where they're not even getting a chance? Like, I mean, obviously they got to put it in a way that doesn't, you know, insult the players too much, but basically like who you got in there has, has been straight trash so far. So why yeah. are you not giving another guy a chance?
0: Right. hundred percent. And, you know, I think, you know, the secondary is one problem. I think that's the glaring one, but you know, I think linebacker Lance Dixon has been solid. I'm still a big Glenn Dixon fan, but I think Lee Koopja has been kind of underwhelming to me too. I mean, mm-hmm. he's had his moments where he's looked good against the run, but I think he's been subpar against the pass. Um, he has missed some tackles and remember we got that um, transfer from Miami um, Austin cave over the summer too. Um, and I wonder if he could start getting some reps in there. Cause I'm not sure if he's played yet.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. And that's kind of what I mean with Neil Brown, like needs to get a little fiery. Like if these guys are missing tackles, yank them out of the play for, I don't know, four plays or so. And then maybe that sends a message. I mean, it doesn't even have to be anything aggressive. Just say, Hey, come over here and sit down. You're not getting it done. And then maybe that wakes up a player a little bit. Like, I don't know. I just don't understand doing the same thing and then expecting different results. I mean, it's just not working.
0: Yeah. And that, that's one thing I said in my season preview was like, I, I figured that the secondary wasn't going to be great to start the season, which it hasn't been, but I expected to kind of see more young guys get opportunities as those guys faltered. And I'm not sure how long we're going to have to wait. It'd be different if those guys were just kind of like, eh, they're okay, but they're just getting beat. I mean, Wesley McCormick's been good um, coverage wise, but he was out the entire half. He didn't finish the pit game. Um And, you know, I just want to see young guys, you know, I want to see someone is in fear of losing their job because I think it's come to that. And it's nothing against those players. If you can't compete at the power five level, you just can't compete at the power five level. It's okay. Like you're on a full ride. You're good.
1: Yeah. And I mean, honestly, it could be the thing that really motivates them to get back in the starting lineup halfway into the season too. I mean, it's not like you bench them and they never see the field again. It could be a wake up call. Um, next on our list is penalties. I feel like we've covered that a lot. Do you want to dive into this?
0: No, I mean, it's just kind of the same things every week. You have your false starts, your holdings, your personal foul penalties at at inopportune times. I mean, uh, it's just discipline. I mean, you got to coach that out in practice. You got to, I mean, false starts and holding, those are things you can control in practice. Obviously, you're not going to have, you know, personal fouls or late hits or roughing quarterbacks probably in practice, but. You know, it it goes without saying that, you know, that's something you talk about with your players at halftime. You talk about them with them on the sideline in between series. You say, you know, play clean, don't hit late, you know, the rules, blah, blah, blah. I mean, if that's what you have to do in between every series, that's what you have to do. You know, it doesn't hurt to reiterate. And if it gets annoying and, you know, repetitive, then maybe they'll just stop doing it. I don't know what else to say about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. So let's talk about the offense for a little bit because, I mean, they were, you know, kind of a bright spot in certain parts of the offense, in my opinion, at least. I wasn't impressed with the overall offense. Um, JT Daniels, Bryce Ford Wheaton had solid days on offense. Sam James, Prather had uh, decent performances as well. Um, As you were telling me earlier, you were checking out their grades on, um, what was it, PFF. And the Mm -hmm. offensive line did well pass blocking, but they couldn't move a body in the run game. Um, I didn't look at their grades, but just the eye test, it seemed like they got no push up front. And I I was just not impressed with the 38 rushing attempts that WVU had. Um, The only reason JT Daniels ended the night with so many pass attempts, he ended with 40, was because WVU was playing they, they were trying to play catch up on those last few drives of the game because they were down by 11 late and so they were just passing a lot. Um, you look this up for me. He had 21 pass attempts prior to being down 11, which means he had, you know, 19, pretty much half his pass attempts all at the end of the game. To me that makes no sense. The passing game was working right from the get-go. That's how we got up 14 nothing and the run game was just never producing. Um Yet Graham or Neil Brown, whoever ma- was making that decision, they just felt the need to force the run game when it wasn't there. And you you needed to be in a shootout. It wasn't like your defense was helping you. So I just can't understand um, that decision. I know you can't throw the ball every play, but why are you running it more than passing it in and, and certain parts of the game when your longest run the entire day was 10 yards? The running backs collectively averaged 3.7 yards a carry that's not very good and um you know this is why our offense sputtered out in the second half in my opinion they they just went away from what was working and sure you know the defense is the, rain, the main reason why west virginia lost that game but um you know maybe wvu's offense outguns kansas if neil doesn't get so soft in the second half what do you think
0: yeah i feel like that was a you know a macro kind of strategy call by neil was after coming out of halftime He wanted Graham to slow the game down, you know, for whatever reason, he felt like he needed to, like we talked about earlier, control the game, control the pace, you know, things were kind of getting out of hand, which maybe they were, but you knew your defense wasn't holding up. And, you know, I think it's evident by this, that, you know, you kind of alluded to it where we had 15 passes in the first half, 12.7 yards per attempt, one touchdown pass or no more, more than one touchdown pass. We had 28 points. Um, but going into the third quarter, before we went down two scores, which I think was in the fourth quarter, we yeah, had six close. passes against 12 rushes. And that's inexcusable with how successful your pass game is going. Yeah. Another thing that was interesting to me, too, was that we only threw three deep balls. And on those three deep balls, we were three for three for 99 yards in the touchdown. And we can't say that it was because we were getting pressured, because on the 40 dropbacks, um, JT Daniels had, he only had eight pressures
1: and zero. So, sacks.
0: yeah, zero sacks. So what's the excuse? I, 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 I don't even know what to say. Like,
1: I don't know. Uh, I'm with you. It makes no sense. And this, this isn't a hindsight is 2020 thing. I mean, we were sitting there watching the game and I was saying that, I mean, it was so obvious that they just quit doing what gave them the lead to begin with. And it, it just made absolutely no sense to me. I get it. If you're having success running the ball. Maybe you're breaking one off here and there, but like I said, their longest run all day was 10 yards. They were not averaging good yards per carry at any point in the game. It, it just, it's puzzling. And when your defense can't make a stop to save their life in the second half, why are you basically handcuffing your best player on offense, which is JT Daniels?
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I feel like if you want to run the ball here and there, you can do it, but you don't need to do it twice as often as you're passing. If you want to run the ball a third of the time, I think that's acceptable with the way the the passing offense was running. And it could even work in your advantage that way with draws and, you know, you can get creative with it with, you know, some screen pass, some screen passes, some swing passes, some, you know, the other creative ways to get, you know, guys, the ball in space, especially your running backs. And, um, you know, I feel like, the running back committee, too, is getting interesting as well because I feel like the most the two most effective backs were C.J. Donaldson and Justin Johnson Jr., um, who I thought both looked really good. I thought they complemented each other really well. I think C.J. Donaldson runs really hard. He brings that power. He was a fantastic goal back, exactly what we needed, where Johnson brings that quickness. He's shifty. He had a nice catch out of the backfield. Um, he was solid in pass protection. He didn't get a ton of snaps. Most of them were in the second half. And, you know, it kind of left me wondering where Tony Mathis fits in, because looking at him run this year compared to the way he ran at the end of the season last year, it's like two completely different guys. I don't know what happened to him.
1: Yeah, yeah, I don't know what it is either. I mean, obviously the line's not giving him a lot of options in terms of gaps, but um yeah, last year he just seemed to be a one cut real quick, get as many yards as you can. And this year, I don't know if he's putting more pressure on himself because he's the bona fide starter, whereas last year it was kind of like, hey, no matter what I do is gravy because Letty's the starter. But, um, yeah, I agree with you. He doesn't look like the same guy who had a good bowl game and a good game against Kansas.
0: Yeah, I mean, the way that he ran last year gave me so much hope going into this season. How physical he was! It seems like he was breaking a tackle or two every time he carried the ball, and now it seems like somehow, some way, um, it's like Space Jam. CJ Donaldson, you know, got Tony Mathis to touch the football when he stole his powers, um, and now CJ Donaldson's the power back.
1: Yeah, I'm with you, man. Uh, I don't know. Maybe he's got a uh, an, an injury that's not being fully disclosed. I don't. I can't put my finger on it. I really don't know. doesn't make sense.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what else to say. I mean, I, it's hard for me to complain about the offense when you scored so many points, but right. we left points on the table.
1: I agree. I agree. And I feel like we didn't play up to our full potential because we were doing something that wasn't working and we quit doing something that was working, which sounds yeah. so completely obvious, but we just laid out the stats for you. That's exactly what we did in the second half. It makes no sense. Um, so unfortunately let's get to the defense. Uh, not a whole lot to say here. That's positive, but, uh, um, you know, I'll start off positive. Like I said earlier, the front seven looked good early on in that game. I thought they were really, um, creating havoc in the backfield. They were putting pressure on Daniels and they were making them throw bad balls. Um, but it, it like I said, it seemed like Kansas adjusted pr- pretty early on even while WVU, Clearly did not. Their, their front seven had a terrible second half. The secondary looked awful for the entire game. And um, you know, there really isn't one good thing I can say about this secondary with Charles Woods out of the lineup. Um, we are yeah. severely missing him. I, I, obviously I, I think we would still have problems in our secondary, but I think Woods coming back would maybe mask that a little bit. Cause he might be able to take out, you know, one side of the field, um, Coach Leslie continuously left his corners and safeties on an island. It seemed like when they 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 clearly couldn't handle that. They were constantly getting beat on one on one matchups. Kansas was 11 for 15 on third down, which is crazy. WVU only forced one third and long. The rest of them were you know third and short, third and five attempts. Um, pretty manageable. Downs, And so, you know, the defense just wasn't putting themselves in good situations. Uh, We said last week prior to this game, Kansas was going to want to run the ball. And they absolutely did. They averaged six yards per carry on the day. um, And and our front seven just got manhandled. Kansas had runs of 30 yards, 19 yards, and compare that to what WVU did on the ground. 3.8 yards an attempt. Longest rush was 10 yards. Uh, We just flat out got bullied around out there. Dante stills was invisible. I don't really blame him. He was pretty much doubled the entire game. Um, I, I blame his teammates. No one really stepped up around him. If you're being doubled, that means someone else should be free to step up and make a play. And, and no one was helping my man out. So that's pretty much all I got to say about the defense.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it was a lot more of what we kind of saw in the pit game and in, in spurts. I felt like with the pit game, our front seven was effective because, Pitt was just running much more of a standard offense. They were dropping straight back. They were running on play actions, just running a pretty standard NFL offense where Kansas neutralized our pass rush and our defensive line, rightfully so. I mean, their offensive line isn't good by keep, keeping us moving horizontal. A lot of zone reads, a lot of veer reads, yeah. triple um, lots of screens, triple options. Um, I mean, they were just stretching things out horizontally and washing everything up in the middle and getting to the second, you know, second level where where we're weak at. I mean, we talked about all the players who had bad games, safeties, cornerbacks, linebackers. They were just taking advantage of that. And that's a smart, you know, game plan by Lance Leopold. I mean, it was um, really effective. I mean, they ran the ball 36 times for 200 yards, four touchdowns. Um, They had 90 yards after contact, an average of 2.5 yards after contact, I'm just kind of going through some of the stats here. I mean, looking at the the receiving, I mean, they didn't throw. What we're uh, I'm looking at the the chart here: one, two, three, three passes that went ten yards or further downfield. Um, what? Well, that's not right. Sorry, that's just a receiver. Um, <laughs> but uh, one, two, three, four, five. 12 passes that went 10 yards or further downfield. And he was one, four, five, six, seven, seven for 12. So not great anywhere past 10, but uh, we were still getting torched. I mean, we're still getting beat all over the field. He was eight for 11 within right down the middle. Um, He was throwing screen passes. They were running outside. They were just killing us. And, you know, defensive wise, we missed 10 tackles. Um, we just weren't good in coverage. I think we had two guys grade out as good or above average in coverage. Um, Lance Dixon, Wesley McCormick, who only played half. Um, Jasir Cox were really the only ones who were solid. Um, and everyone else was just kind of bad. I mean, even the guys who graded out as good in coverage – um Lance Dixon had was only targeted once Marcus Floyd was targeted four times allowed four catches just Cox was targeted twice allowed two catches you know so even though that they're in the right place they're just not making plays on the ball and then on top of that with the 10 missed tackles um just not a good game no sacks they just took away our best part of the game and beat us
1: yeah yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I mean, I don't have a whole lot to say. I'm sure everyone listening watched the game and then they saw it for themselves. Um, Kansas just straight up uh, out game planned us. Really? I mean, I mean, what they did was working and, and when it wasn't they adjusted and we just flat out did not.
0: 100%.
1: Yeah. So let's wrap it up today, guys. We're going to talk about Townsend real quick. Uh, Townsend is two and zero. they have close wins over Bucknell and Morgan state. Uh, I was kind of looking at what this team likes to do. Cause obviously I was ho- really hoping they aren't a team who likes to just gun it. <laughs> and, um, from what I could see, this is a team who likes to run the ball more than pass it, but make no mistake, they will toss it around. Their lowest number of passing attempts in a game was 25. Um, and obviously WVU should blow this team out. The Townsend only has, um, you know, five total touchdowns through their first two games. That's not very good. So it's not like a team that should put up a lot of points against our defense. And you would think um, it's a team that West Virginia's offense should put up some pretty good numbers. And hopefully our front seven gets their mojo back a little bit against guys that I'm sure are going to be greatly undersized. And, and um, we'll see. I mean, obviously what's, what the big question mark is on every WVU's mind is uh, how will our secondary hold up? So I'm not going to rule anything out after Kansas. Obviously I think it'll be a big win for us, but um, you know, I'll tell you what, two weeks ago, I was a lot more confident heading into this game than I am right now.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not, not confident. You know, I do think we'll still win this game. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think, more of what I'm looking for is how we win the game. I mean, uh, we I want us exactly. to win big. I want us to not have to struggle at all. I want to see us pulling starters in the, the at the end of the second quarter. And even then, you know, it's not like something I'm going to get excited about. It's just going to be like, I expected that. And if it's anything less than winning by like 30 or 40 points, then, you know, it's it's a bad game because it is a bad game. You, you've got to learn to have that killer instinct. you got to learn to be able to take ki- teams out when you can yeah and um you know we did it against long island what was that last year um but it really doesn't mean anything like this game is just kind of insignificant if we lose it it becomes the most significant game in neil brown's tenure if we win it it doesn't mean anything
1: well i kind of look at it at Like, um, remember a few years ago, I think it was Neil Brown's first year. James Madison came to town and James Madison's a good FCS school, but we only beat him by seven. I think it was like 20 to 13 Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: yeah, you won, but it didn't feel good. And that's my only fear here. I'm I'm scared that, you know, maybe we get a big lead and then our defense just collapse again. And then, you know, even if we walk out with like a 14 point win, we'll, you know, we're, we're still going to be pretty depressed. That's my fear. Not that I actually think we would lose, who knows, but I don't think. Uh, My fear is that we're just going to be coming out even more, you know, depressed about our defense. So we'll see.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think if, if we don't win by at least 28, I think it's something where, you know, even if it's, you know, if you finish somewhere in between the, let's say 17 and 28 point range, I don't think people are going to be happy, but I don't think that gets anyone talking. But if you win by less than, say, 14 points, 14 or less, I think that's something where the talks around Neil Brown getting fired just ramp up exponentially. And then you're going into a Thursday night game in Blacksburg on Virginia Tech with all that pressure. Yeah, Um, Things could escalate really quickly, depending on how the Saturday goes.
1: And you really don't want those talks being ramped up right before a big game like that because, you know, players here, you know, the coaching staff here is it. So they just need to go out there and take care of business. And hopefully mm-hmm. we can be two and two in a couple of weeks here, which is expected. I mean, it's not even like tech's good. So I won't feel good about being two and two, but it's, it's the best case scenario where we're sitting right now.
0: Yeah. I and mean, we'll talk more about it next week, but I, I do think that the tech game is going to end up being closer than it should be.
1: Of course. Um, sure.
0: <laughs> I mean, I'll do the environment due to the rivalry and also just due to the way that our coaches coach.
1: So. Yeah. I mean, after this Saturday, I don't think we're capable of blowing any team out until they prove to me. Otherwise I I don't see why I would sit here and lie to myself.
0: Yeah, exactly. I couldn't agree more.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for us guys. I know this is a hard episode to even, you know, get pumped up for to or to even listen to because it was a depressing weekend. But, um, Hopefully there are some bright spots in the future. We shall see. Regardless, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.
0: Yeah, and let us know what you think on social media. Tell us, you know, what would make this loss more acceptable to you? What would W's record need to be in order to give Neil Brown another year? We want to hear what you think about this as well, because it's a tough time to be a Mountaineer fan, and it helps to vent. Let's talk, guys.
1: 100%. Later, guys.